Hello, Love Chapel Hill. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Sam and Caitlin and Brian for leading us today. And uh, yeah, it feels so good to be back in here preaching. I actually preached in here for like a year with no one here. So it feels awesome to see other human beings. Thank you. All right, so excited. Uh, and today we're going to be in the book of 1 John, chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 7 and go to 21. A, li a little bit of context for the book of John, real quick, for the book of 1 John. Uh, this is not the gospel of John. Uh, this is actually much later in the New Testament. And so the gospel of John, you might imagine we would be in the gospel of John today because I'm kind of obsessed with the gospel of John. I will confess that, all right? Um, but we are not in the gospel of John. That's at the beginning of the New Testament. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. Right at the open of the New Testament, we have these four gospels that tell the story of Jesus, uh, that tell the, about the ministry of Jesus, about his life, about his miracles, about his teachings about his crucifixion, and about the victory of his resurrection. But where we are today is actually at the very end, almost to the very end of the New Testament. And we have three letters that are written to a group of churches here by the same author who wrote the Gospel of John. So these three uh, letters are titled after that author uh, in this very creative title for them of 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John. All right. So 1st John is the largest of the letters. It's a few pages in your New Testament. It's five chapters. Uh, the 2nd John and 3rd John are so short as letters that they actually, in my version here, uh, they actually both fit on one page. Uh, the front of one page in my my New Testament that I have here. Uh, this is also, tri uh, Christian tradition teaches us, the same author who's crossing multiple genres here, not just writing a gospel at the beginning of the New Testament, not just writing three letters contained here in the New Testament to, these, uh, to this circuit of churches that he's an overseer of. Uh, this collection of house churches, most likely around in and around the city of Ephesus, where John leaves Jerusalem and then becomes a pastor and an overseer of this collection of house churches around Ephesus, according to Christian history and tradition. But he's also the author of the last book of the New Testament, uh, the book of Revelation, in this completely different genre from anything else that we get in the New Testament. It's called apocalyptic uh, literature, and it gives us this vision, not just of the future, but of the reality now, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is victorious, and it pulls back the curtain on that reality of what it means to be the church of Jesus here and now. So that's uh, kind of the context that we're in today. This author who's writing across these multiple genres of scripture, a gospel, three letters, the book of Revelation, and yet there's this consistent theme that runs through them all. The conquering victory of Jesus who is love. And so love is a key theme that we see all the way through and ties all of these books together. Jesus as the embodiment of 
love. So with that in mind, let's jump into 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Here's what he has to say to this collection of churches that he's encouraging and instructing and equipping and building up. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. You hear the echo of that language that we've been using all the way throughout this series of learning what it means to live in God for the world. Not living in the world for God, but living in God for the world and the love overflowing out of us through that. So you can hear that language. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like Jesus. What a statement. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. That's the root of love. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates their brother or sister, they are a liar. For, for anyone who does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And, in, and he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus, speak clearly to us today through the power of your word through your friend who wrote about you in such a powerful and persuasive way. You can hear in his words the way his love for you is so deeply rooted in him and is flowing out of him and is growing out of him as he's challenging 
this church in a city very much like our own community and our surrounding area. So much overlap between us and them. And I pray that you would challenge us in the same way that you challenge this church through your apostle John. Speak to us clearly and use this word to build us up, to break down what needs to be broken down. And to grow what needs to grow in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today uh, we are in the um, last sermon of this series that we've been in together that we're calling How to Build a Monastery. And so we're using this image and this language of a monastery uh, that we kind of instinctively associate with this place that is a deep, uh, a place of deep communion and intimacy with God. This place of deep union with God. And so we're using that, that image that we're familiar with and we're asking ourselves, how can we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit creating that within us? Not that we are escaping away to a monastery somewhere and going to live away from culture, but instead, how can the Holy Spirit create that in us so that we can live in God for the world, to be engaged with the world, flowing out of that place of deep union and communion within us in this deep relationship with God. And so today we're raising the last of the four walls that we've been talking about that kind of form this sense of a monastery for us. Uh, we started with the idea of scripture, that scripture informs everything else for us. It teaches us, uh, it leads us and guides us. And so we begin with being rooted in scripture. Together we committed uh, to pray the Shema, this, this ancient piece of Jewish scripture uh, that the people of Israel pray every morning, every day, so that they would be framed, their lives would be framed by living within the words of God and the scripture of God, the commands of God in the Shema. It says that these commands should be upon our hearts, that they should be written on our hearts as we go out, as we come back home, as we lie down, as we get up, that our whole lives are framed within the reality of Scripture. The second wall we talked about is prayer. And even though prayer can be a challenging concept for so many of us, we are allowing Scripture to be our guide in that. And so together we are praying one psalm a day. And we're allowing the Psalms to teach us how to pray. And if you've ever struggled about the way you're praying about somebody else in your life, the Psalms let you off the hook a little bit. As we're continuing to find uh, the way that the psalmists pray uh, and, and pray, ask God to, to move in judgment against our enemies, it's a bit uh, difficult for us even to read through that together. But it shows us the reality that we can be open and raw and be our true selves, that we can let everything out in prayer, that there's nothing off limits. And of course, that gets critiqued and shaped as we understand the person of Jesus and we get challenged in that. But the Psalms open that up for us and invite us into this place of learning what it means to pray, that nothing is off limits, the full scope of human experience and human emotion to allow ourselves to be ourselves in him. 
And then we talked about mission, what it means to be people on mission. And we looked at, at the Gospel of John last week as Jesus uh, appears back to his disciples after his resurrection. And he commissions them and he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And we live in the reality of that sentness. And so now the last uh, piece of this is this idea of community. And a monastery is a beautiful example of what Christian community can look like. It's people who actually don't just escape from the culture as a whole, but they enter into a shared community, a Christian community, and they're shaped by that experience. They're shaped by each other. But our belief is not that you have to escape away to experience that, but that is to be alive right here within the church. And so we understand that community is an essential part of the DNA of the church. That anywhere you find an authentic expression of the church across history, across any culture, you will see community as a part of that. There are three elements that we say are the DNA of the church. And we challenge you to press us on this and find anything that makes up the reality of the church that doesn't fall within one of these three uh, elements. And so we talk about discipleship, following Jesus, that call to follow Jesus. We talk about mission, being sent to go and make disciples and community. That this is a shared experience. And from the very beginning, just like last week, we went back to the original call of the disciples that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. And we see embedded in that just the call into discipleship, but also the commission into mission as Jesus calls these disciples and he says, come follow me and I will teach you what it means to become, to fish for people. And so we see the call of discipleship and the commission as well at the same time. But we also see the element of community alive in that because those very first disciples that Jesus called, he did not call one disciple by themselves. He called a group together. He called two sets of two brothers. So from the very beginning, community has been embedded in this. It is a part of what it means to be the church. It's a part of the essential DNA of the church of Jesus in this world. Christianity is deeply personal. No one else can make the decision to follow Jesus for you. No one else can make the decision to surrender to that rescue that Jesus offers to you through salvation. No one else can make the decision for you to follow him in obedience, to be shaped by the Spirit, to move into a life of sanctification, to become more like Jesus every day. No one else can do that for you. It's deeply personal. But it's always been deeply communal and a shared experience from the very beginning as well. It's a part of the DNA of the church. It's written into the essence of the church. It's also written into the essence of what it means to be a human. Every single one of us needs this. We desire this. We long for this. We need it not just for our flourishing and our thriving, but for our survival. It's a part of who we are and who we have been since the beginning. Trace the roots all the way back through the scriptural story and go back to the beginning of the story of scripture and the narrative in Genesis of the creation narrative that we get. 
And we see community alive in that moment. As God speaks his blessing over every area of creation, everything that he's created, he calls it good. Then when he gets to humanity, he calls humanity very good. Why? Because we're created in the image of God, the crown of creation, the only part of creation that has that spoken over them, that we're created in the image of God. And yet it's also a part of humanity's story. That's the only part that God calls not good in the creation narrative. He says all is good. He looks at us and he says that, that be, us being created in his image, we are very good. But there's also one part that he says is not good. And that's when Adam is alone. Why? Because we need community. And so Eve is created and then we get the fullness of the full picture of humanity of what it truly means to be made in the image of God. It's not just our roots, it's also God's roots as well. Trace all the way back the story of God, back before creation. And God who is pre-existent, he exists in relationship. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in union. Three persons, one God in relationship since before the beginning. And so it's out of that holy love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that all of creation is created. It flows out of that holy love. And we're created out of that as well. We're made in his image. So we're made to be loved by him and to love him. But we're also made to love one another. Apart and alone, it is not good. Only when we are together in communion, God speaks that as Good. And so this is what John is getting at here as he's tracing it all the way back to the beginning and speaking of the essence of God and saying God is love. And because God is love and because he has loved us, he empowers us to love him because he first loved us. But it doesn't just stop there. It also continues in this overflow of love. This is, the, this is the trajectory of the story, is love overflowing, overflowing, overflowing. And it doesn't just stop with us loving God and God loving us. It flows over into us loving one another. The Christian church is designed to become a people called love. We use that language quite a bit around here to describe ourselves as a church and this vision that we sense God calling us to be a people called love. And that's God's dream for his church. We see as John is talking about this here in this letter and across all of those New Testament genres writing of how God is becoming flesh and blood in Jesus and becoming the radical revolutionary love that has turned the world on its head. But as he's describing here in this letter, we're not talking about love as just some general concept, not just some nebulous sense that serves as a replacement theology for Jesus. It's easy for us to move into that. And when we come up against difficult moments and difficult issues, it's easy for us to begin to substitute this general sense of love as a replacement theology for the person of Jesus. That is not what John is doing at all here. That is not what he is up to. In fact, it's the opposite. 
Many scholars believe that this letter was written to address a heresy that was beginning to grow. It's an early form of a heresy that, that grew over generations, a, a heresy called Gnosticism. And in that, basically, uh, just to just to bring it down to its basic level, uh, there's this belief that what is spiritual is good, what is physical is evil. And so you can see immediately the implications of Christianity when it comes to that. We, we might think that we lean towards that. Yeah, the world around us is evil and the spirit is good. But that's a heresy that plagued the early church. And John is writing against that here. At the core of Christian theology, we believe that Jesus... He's not just fully God. We do believe he's fully God, but we also believe that Jesus is fully human. That's the mystery and beauty of the incarnation, fully human and fully God. And so in this heresy of Gnosticism, they started to push back against that and they tried to spiritualize Jesus. They were emphasizing, overemphasizing his divinity and de-emphasizing his humanity. And in doing that, they're trying to spiritualize Jesus. And it's very easy for us to do the same. To spiritualize this sense of Jesus and to spiritualize love. But John is not doing that. He is not pulling back on Jesus at all and using love as a spiritualized replacement for him or as a more palatable term for him. Instead, he's going all in on Jesus and he's defining love based on who Jesus is, based on his character, based on his actions, and based on his death. And we want to do the same as a church. For those who are watching the live stream and for those who are in the room right now, a little bit of uh, crowd participation, all right? This is the easiest question you're going to get all day. But what is the mission of Love Chapel Hill? There it is. Did you hear the enthusiasm in that? I felt it, all right? <laughs> to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. Our name is our mission. But we don't just stop at Love Chapel Hill. With the heart of Jesus. That's the anchoring and defining reality of what we mean when we say that. So that will push us to love in some ways that can be surprising, that can be shocking, that can be sacrificial beyond what we would do if we just spiritualize the idea of love. That is not what John is doing and that is not what we want to do either when we talk about Christian community and when we talk about embodying and becoming a people called love. Here's what he says in verse 9 of this passage. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. His definition of love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the definition of what the love of Jesus is and what we're talking about and what John is getting at here in this letter. And it's not just a belief that Jesus was a loving person and we'd all be better off if we paid more attention to what he had to say and if we all did our best here and there to practice that every once in a while. That's not what he's getting at. Instead, he says this in verse 13. 
This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. John is fighting here for a full-hearted orthodoxy, which means Jesus as the Son of God and names a clear Trinitarian theology here. We get a, a, a theology that outlines the presence of the Spirit within us and the Father sending the Son. This is not simply to say that the world would be a better place if we all put a little love in our hearts as much as we might love that song. But this is the scandalous gospel declaration that the essence of God himself is not just uncontainable power, which we might automatically think when we think about God, but the scandalous declaration of the gospel is not just that God is uncontainable power, but he is unconditional love. That is who he is. And the father loved us so much that he sent his son as the flesh and blood embodiment of that love. Not love as a concept or emotion, but love as a person named Jesus. And that love did the unthinkable, becoming one of us, going to the rejected and the hurting and the cast aside, challenging the power structures and the religious systems that beat people down. And instead, he gives relief and hope and grace and forgiveness and freedom to the captive and to the sinner and to the poor and to the meek and to the mourners. This is what love looks like. He comes proclaiming the establishment of the kingdom of God and ushering in the radical culture that comes along with it. He lays down his own life to rescue us from sin and death and to bring us into a reconciled relationship with him and the Father. And now his spirit lives within us. His spirit lives within us. God himself living within us, filled with the Holy Spirit as a constant testimony that this is true, as a constant assurance that we are saved, and as a constant empowerment to become more and more like Jesus every day, to walk with him on that journey of sanctification, of surrender, to become like Jesus, to become a people called love. He is love. And through him, we are becoming love as well. St. Catherine of Siena uh, was a mystic and a nun. And she also is the namesake of our favorite new member of Love Chapel Hill, Siena Catherine Otwell. Let's give it up for Siena Catherine. There she is. Oh, man, she's beautiful. Let me make sure I'm not blocking that. Okay. All right. Anyway. So beautiful. And so in honor of Siena Catherine, here's a quote from St. Catherine of Siena today. All right. Here's what she has to say. The soul cannot live without love. She always wants to love something because love is the stuff she is made of. And through love, she was created. And she goes on to say, love transforms us into what we love. 
Love transforms us into what we love. Listen to how that echoes what John says in this passage here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. Now, love doesn't make us Jesus, but love forms our character, forms our affections, forms our allegiances. And all throughout the New Testament witness, we see over and over again this challenge that the reality of the love of God is that it reshapes us, reforms us. We are new creation through him, and we are being made more and more like Jesus through his transforming grace every single day. Because of his love for us and because of our love for him, we are becoming like him. In other words, because of his love for us and our love for him, we are becoming love to each other. We are embodying that to each other. And we're told that this will actually be one of the most convincing proofs that we are disciples of Jesus. Paul, uh, John says this, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And he has given us this command. That is a direct echo back to the gospel of John. Same author, same person who was at the table, who was in the room with Jesus. Where among his last words to his disciples, his last night with them before he's betrayed, before he's put on trial, before he's taken to be crucified. He gives them this command. The Gospel of John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35. It says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Verse 35, by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How is this a new command? Isn't this like the thread of the teachings of Jesus? And Jesus himself says that he threads the whole of scripture wisdom. Everything that God has said through the prophets, through the law, through the poets. He threads it all together by quoting the Shema on one hand and pulling from another passage in Deuteronomy on another. And saying this is the command, the command to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. So how is it that here at the end of the, his ministry, Jesus is saying, a new command I give you, love one another. Well, it's the as that's right there. In the earlier teachings of Jesus, he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And now here in these last words, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. It's from as yourself to as I have loved you. Do you see the leap in the difference of scope and character and capacity of that kind of love? From the kind of love that we are capable of giving to ourselves and therefore to others to the kind of love that Jesus gives to us. He says this love will transform us so much 
that it will begin to work its way out of us. And what does this love look like? Right here in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, when he gives this new command, it's in the same context where he's just washed the feet of a person who is betraying him, who is in the act of betraying him as this is all unfolding. And he washes the feet of Peter who is going to deny him when Jesus needs him most. It's the kind of love that meets betrayal with washing feet. The kind of love that meets denial with preemptive grace spoken over us. And the kind of love that as we move to the cross of Jesus uses its last gasps of breath to pray forgiveness for his enemies, even for those who are putting him to death. This is the grand scope and capacity and character of the love of God. And he says this is possible through us and to us as he is forming this community and this people called love. Now every single one of us is feeling angst and feeling the reality of the gap between this vision that Jesus gives us of who we're called to be and the reality that we experience every single day. So we need to be honest about that reality that exists within our own church community and the ways in which we have hurt each other, even without meaning to, the ways in which we have hurt each other. That's real. And that's a real part of what it means to be a Christian community together. In Acts chapter 2, we're obsessed with the Gospel of John. It seems like we're also obsessed with the book of Acts. So every fall, we study the Gospel of John together in the story, our, our core Bible study. And every uh, spring, we study the book of Acts. So if we're studying in John what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in Acts, we're studying what it means to live the mission of Jesus in the world. And we just get blown away when we're studying Acts chapter 2 and this beautiful image of the early church and this authentic Christian community that we see on display there. It's so beautiful where everyone gave to each other so that no one was in need. It's powerful and it's critiquing and it's challenging. And we look at that and we think, how is that possible? And it was possible, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's possible. But we also need to realize that we're going to keep reading through the book of Acts and even as we move through the book of Acts, we see fractures within that beautiful community as well. Why? Because these are human beings who are being made into the likeness of Jesus, but are on that journey of sanctification and transformation. And so they hurt each other. Even the Apostle Paul, that we honor so much as this brilliant theological mind, the very person that opens the door for Paul to join the Christian church, Barnabas, they become side-by-side co-laborers in the gospel with each other on these missions together, planting new churches, carrying the gospel into new places, and that brotherhood fractures. It says there's a, dis a disagreement between them that is so sharp that they decide to go different ways. And so Paul goes in one direction and we follow his story. Barnabas goes in the other direction and we never hear from him again. And it's heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking. And we see a, a similar fracture happen even between 
Paul and some of the other apostles. Between Paul and Peter, we see friction and we see fracture. But we also see the reality of forgiveness as embodied by the love of Jesus. That's the reality. There's going to be friction and there's going to be fracture. But there's also the possibility of forgiveness as he teaches us what it looks like to live this together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, we quote from him quite a bit. But he formed this beautiful Christian community right in the midst of the rise of the Nazi regime. And as the power of the Nazi regime was forcing itself on the people of Germany and then on the world around us in so many destructive and evil ways, right in the midst of that, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German uh, theology professor, formed this beautiful community as this counter image as this protest against the Nazi regime as this prophetic vision of what Christian community could look like as this countercultural critique of what was happening in the culture around him it was he named it the underground seminary and he brought together this group of philosophers and poets and artists and everyday ordinary disciples of Jesus. And they modeled in beautiful ways what it looks like to be a Christian community. But even he says this in the book that grows out of that. It's called Life Together. In what is the handbook for that community, he says this and challenges us in this. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself. Anybody else ever been there? You have a dream, you have a vision of what it should look like. And then it comes in contrast with the reality that you're experiencing. But he says those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. I've been guilty of that myself, and I repent for the places where I've been guilty of that. I've also been guilty of this. I think that there are three places when it comes to Christian community where we tend to land. Number one, we can be a critic. And a critic looks at all of the gaps and is able to see the gaps and points out the gaps and focuses in on the gaps of what is missing and what is wrong. Number two is the consumer. A person who receives, receives, receives and thinks that it is about themselves. And number three is the creator. Now here's the reality though. We actually, even in the way I present that at the beginning, it's an obvious setup, right? That's challenging everybody to become a creator. And we do need every single person who's a part of this Christian community to become a creator of Christian community. But we actually also need you to be all three. So when I say a critic, I don't mean that in a completely negative way. We need people who have the prophetic vision to see the gaps and to see what is missing and to have the courage and enough love for this Christian community to point that out and to call that out and to articulate that in a way that we need to hear because we need to hear it. We need to hear it. Don't keep that silent. We need people to be critics. We need all of us to be critics. We also need all of us to be consumers. We need all of us to be 
poured into so that we have something to pour out into the community around us. We need that. You can't just give, 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 give and never rest and never receive. You will burn out. And we don't want you to burn out. We don't want that to happen to you. So we need you to be a critic. Show us the gaps. We need you to be a consumer to receive so that you're empowered to give. And we need you to be a creator. Someone who in those gaps begins to fill the gaps. Begins to give yourself towards addressing the things that are wrong in order to set them right. To receive and also to give. So we need us to be all three. A critic, a consumer, and a creator all at the same time. Time. That's how this Christian community will be built. How do we do that? I want to challenge you to go to lovechapelhill.com or reach out to Joel at lovechapelhill.com and ask about our discipleship path. Because the way that we have our discipleship path set up, it's an intentional ecosystem that speaks to discipleship, mission, and community all at once. And there are several avenues in which you can step into and experience all three of those. We sometimes have a tendency to lean into one of those and to say what we need now is discipleship. What we really need is mission. What we really need is community. We actually need all three of those working together in this ecosystem. And so within that discipleship path, you'll find the story, which is a Bible study that anybody can jump into at any time. You don't have to have any history for that. You can jump in at any time and discover all three of those happening. Our prayer meeting on Wednesday morning, anybody can jump into that at any time. We have small groups and we need more small groups forming. And so if you're seeing a gap, then we need you to step into that and help form a new small group that fills that gap and fills that need. And then we have our discipleship bands, which are smaller versions of small groups. So these are groups of three to five people who are walking in intentional discipleship together. And some of the most beautiful community that I'm seeing forming within this church is happening there in those discipleship bands. Maybe you've tried and it didn't work. I understand that. Try again. Try again. Stay in it. Stay in it. This is a long haul journey for all of us. No farmer wakes up one morning, walks out of their door, and stumbles into a harvest. That's not how it works. There are seasons of plowing. There are seasons of planting. There are seasons of cultivating that then lead to a season of harvest. No farmer ever stumbles out of their door into a harvest. It requires all of those. Lean into all of those and help us experience this together and see this together. And remember that not every harvest every year is going to have the same yield. There will be times of disappointment. There will be stretches where it feels like nothing is happening and no growth is happening. Stay in it. Community is a long haul. Community is a long haul commitment. It takes risk. And I know that's difficult for us to open ourselves up to that. If we've been hurt before, it's very difficult to risk that again. But let me encourage you with these words from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors from his book called The Four Loves. He says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. 
Love anything and you will be wrung and possibly broken. Your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, then you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. We've all hurt each other. Unfortunately, that's part of the reality of being human together. But among the friction and among the fractures, there is forgiveness. There's the healing power of Jesus. That capacity and character of love that is beyond ourselves, but yet is somehow within us because he plants it there. And he's calling us to love one another, to become a people called Love. This is the direction that we're moving in together. This is what we're becoming, is love. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, Love is not our duty, it is our destiny. Love is the language they will speak in the new creation, and we get to learn it here and now. It's difficult, and there are lots of irregular verbs and vocabulary that will be very difficult to get your head and tongue around. But learn it now, because one day you will be singing it. We are becoming a people called love. Let's learn the language. Closing with John's own words here. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us, and he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must love one another. We pray that as a prayer over our church congregation. And as we're coming back together soon here in this space, we pray that for the next season of our church community, that we would be deepened in that, that we would become a people called love. Amen.